So this chapter that we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, is the culmination really of the last three chapters. Uh, all through these four chapters, Paul has been addressing the very first of the issues that he wants to collar the Corinthians on, the Corinthian church on. Um, because the whole, ser- the whole book really is a series of issues that he wants to, wants to address with, the, with this young church, this young immature church. He's serious concerns about what's going on there. And the first issue he's been rolling through with these first four chapters is their worldliness, their immaturity, their pride, particularly shown in the way that they form personality groups like the I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I belong to Peter, those, those groups that he mentioned twice in those three chapters. And he's had some very hard words to say to the Corinthians. But at the end of this chapter, chapter 4, he lets them know that he's prepared to say harder words still. Have a look at the last verse in this chapter we're looking at. Verse 21, he says, What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Strong words, aren't they? We recently had an FIEC celebrity come to OEC and he would actually hate me calling him that. That was Al Stewart. He's the National Director of FIEC. He had some really helpful things to say to us as a church. We had a meeting with the overseers with him and had some really helpful stuff for us to hear. But imagine if through those doors at the back of church now came the Apostle Paul. And he came and took the pulpit and he addressed us as a church. What would he say if he came to our church? Let's say, you know, you haven't had dinner yet and he said, listen, can I come and have dinner at your place tonight? I'm pretty hungry. And you had the Apostle Paul at your place. What would he say to you? What would he say in person to you? Would he come with a whip? Would he come with a loving and gentle word? We want to let that question hang and we'll address it at the end. So tonight we're going to be looking at what Paul had to say to the Corinthian church through 1 Corinthians 4. Then we'll come back and think, well, what would Paul say if he walked in the door and took the microphone? For the last three chapters, Paul's been addressing this issue of the personality cults within the Corinthian church. And as he's done that again and again, he's come back to the cross of Christ. Because in all their pride, they had taken their eyes off the cross. The cross is the wisdom and the power of God. That's what he spoke about. The cross rejected by the world as weak and as foolish. The cross last week, chapter 3, is the foundation of Christian ministry that Paul laid within the church. And in this chapter, he makes crystal clear that the cross is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's just not, the, not just the foundation of the Christian life, the starting point. It, in fact, shapes the whole of the Christian walk from start to finish, from salvation to glory. And it's the cross that the Corinthian church had begun to deny as the way that the thing that really needed to shape their Christian walk. So as I said, uh, chapter 4 is the conclusion to his words on this issue of the party spirit, the pride that exists within this congregation, within this church. And in this chapter 4, we get a bit more of an insight into what's actually happening on the ground in Corinth, in this church, through things that he says. Have a look at verse 3. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time, he says. 
Then drop down to verse 18. You see even more clearly what's going on. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. So can you see what's happening within this congregation, within this church in Corinth? As we listen to this one side of the conversation through this letter from Paul, there's arrogant people, there's these new teachers, whether they come from within the church or coming from without and, and, and leading the people astray, and they're, and they're dissing Paul. They're having a go at him. They're telling the Corinthian church, listen, that Paul, he's, he's old news. His message is unimpressive. His, his ministry is something you need to mature beyond, move from. New teaching has arrived and so they're judging Paul, they're, they're writing him off. And so in this chapter, Paul warns them, he admonishes them, reminds them that the message he brings is actually the power of the cross and the power of the gospel. He warns them because as they're turning away from him as their apostle and turning to the impressive speakers that have come among them, and they diss him, what they're beginning to do is turn from the Jesus that Paul preaches, turn from the cross of Christ as presented by the apostle, this solid foundation. And they're embracing a Christianity that's almost devoid of the cross. That's what's going on. And you can see this also in the way that he speaks about the new approach to the Christian life that he mentions, that he talks about from verse 7 that the Corinthians are now beginning to embrace. Verse 7, For who makes you different from anybody else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So the Corinthians are being arrogant. They're full of pride, full of themselves. They look down on Paul. They look down on one another. They look down on others. And they're so full of the things that they think that they own, they think they have within themselves, that other people don't. And you can see that, it, that some of the content of their boasting, what they're talking about, in what he says in verses 8 to 10, you, could, you can almost hear, you can actually hear Paul quoting the things that they're saying about themselves. They're saying, we have everything we want. They're saying, we are rich. They're saying, we're kings. We are wise. We are strong. We are honoured. And they look down on Paul and on other people as weak, as dishonoured, as foolish, as poor. They've got everything they feel. They feel as Christians, they've made it. They have the blessings, the power, the influence, the significance, the riches. They've bought the lies of these new teachers and they're chasing this, I think they have this victorious Christian life, this comfortable Christian life where they have everything that they need and they feel like they've made it. They feel like they can rest in the honour and the glory of where they stand and enjoy this successful, comfortable Christian experience. As I explain it like that, as we read through this chapter, it, it sounds like the modern charismatic prosperity teaching, doesn't it? If you've come across it, basically it says God wants to bless you here and now with success and riches and healing and, and glory. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. The blessings of heaven can be yours now. You just need to believe enough. You need to ask enough. You need to believe strongly enough. And that can be yours because God loves to give it to you. And he's promised to give it to you. Christ has won it for you. The benefits of heaven can be yours now. Now I think that comparison between the prosperity teaching that happens in churches sometimes 
And what we read in 1 Corinthians, I think that comparison's fair, but it's easy to point the finger outside these walls, isn't it? Let's actually point the finger within. Let's actually look at ourselves. Let's do that. When you look at the way that the Corinthians describe their understanding of the Christian life, don't really, when you think about it, I, I think they've obtained what we all long for, really. Let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. Don't we all desire the Christian life we see described here? Don't we all want to be rich? Actually, we wouldn't quite put it like that now, would we, in this company? Let's call it comfortable. We all want to be comfortable, don't we? We all want to be seen as being honoured and wise. We want people to like us like that and think of us like that. When it all boils down to it, isn't that what we pursue? Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we work towards? Aren't we sick of the struggles and, and the hardships and the sufferings and the pain? Of course we are. We desire a life free from hardship and persecution and rejection and so we're not as outspoken as we might be otherwise. We're not as bold as we might be. We don't give till it hurts. We protect ourselves from loss, from risk in relationships and in life. We find ourselves too busy to engage in ministry. Well, actually what we do is we embrace things that make life too busy to engage in ministry and give ourselves to it. We like to live the comfortable life and not pay too high a price. We're the same, aren't we? That's our temptation too. It's our sin too. If we have time, if we feel like it, we might fit ministry in, but that's all. We expect, the, we expect this comfortable Christian life, and when it turns out to be too hard, when the cost seems to be too high, when it gets a bit too uncomfortable, we retreat from the cost. We seek that comfortable Christian life again. Because that's actually what we're working towards. That's what we're seeking to have. And so we're guilty of the same sin. And the Corinthians, they bought the lies of their age, the wisdom and the power of their age, the lies about the importance of success and acceptance and glory. And then over the top of that lie, they actually put a veneer of Christianity. That's what they did. And you can see it in this passage. Verse 10, Paul, claims, Paul says that they claim to be so wise in Christ, it says. That's what they claim. Now, remember, there's sarcasm all the way through this section. Paul doesn't think they're wise. No, Paul has said, you're worldly and you're foolish. You've taken on the lies of the world. That's the truth. But they think, they think they're wise in Christ. So now can you see that thin veneer of Christianity they put over the top of their worldly wisdom? That's what they've done. And this is a massive warning shot across our bow. Could we have swallowed the lies of our world and then plastered over the top a thin veneer of Christianity so that we're acceptable to our Christian friends and really we're comfortable with the tag Christian? But really, deep, not, actually not that deep down, just under the surface, we're just like the world. We're no different. We're the same. We think the same. We live the same. Could we have swallowed the idols of our day, our success, of success, of happiness, of comfort, of riches, of, and then plastered over the top a form of Christianity that makes us feel acceptable? I think we're very susceptible to that. I know I am. I know this is a word I need to hear. But to help us understand this mindset that the Corinthians had even more, have, a, have another look at verse 8. Paul says, already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. 
So the issue here is not so much that being rich or being comfortable or having what you want is bad in and of itself. The problem here is the timing of it. He says already, that's the issue. The problem is, it's not time for that yet. When Jesus returns, then will be the time of comfort. Then will be the time for rest. Then will be the time for riches. Unheard of. Then will be the time of blessings beyond beyond understanding. But the Corinthians wanted those benefits now, and they didn't want to wait. And so they lived for it now. No, now's not the time for rest and to enjoy the comfortable life. Now's the time for sacrifice, for the cross-shaped life, for paying the price of following the Saviour in a world that thinks we're a bunch of fools, just like Paul did. The Corinthian approach to the Christian life was completely out of whack for two reasons. The two reasons are it cheapens the blessings of heaven to come and it fails to appreciate what the Christian life was promised to look like by our Saviour. So let's look at those two things in turn. How does it cheapen the blessings of heaven to come? Well, to think that now is a time of rest, now is a time of comfort and blessing and glory and significance and acceptance, is like having a holiday in your lounge room. Stay with me. Let me explain to you how that illustration works. Uh, and I think in COVID, I think we can appreciate this illustration even more. Let's say you take two weeks off work or uni or school or life responsibilities, whatever it might be. You've planned a holiday. You've got all the brochures. You've done all the Googling that you need to do. You've made the plan. You've got the itinerary. It's all set. But instead of going to the expense and the pain of packing and the time of travel, you've decided to have this holiday at home in your lovely, comfortable lounge. Okay? And you're going to bring everything up on the screen. You're going to get the itinerary out every morning, look at where you're going to go. Then you're going to get out the computer, look at Google Maps, follow the road, see the sites, get the brochures out, the images, and then you're going to imagine the holiday of your lifetime. So you imagine yourself travelling through mountain passes. There we go. You can just imagine it right now. Diving into crystal clear waters. Jet skiing from island to island to island, coasting the, the Sundays on a yacht, exploring the ancient architecture of Ephesus, or so whatever floats your boat, whatever cranks your tractor, okay? And at the end of the two weeks, you go back to work, you go back to school, you go back to uni, and you say, gee, I had such a great two weeks, I had such a fantastic holiday, and they shake their head at you and say, you're an idiot. Like, really? You just sat in your armchair for two weeks. That's all you did. You see, all the, all the planning, all the imagining, all the dreaming doesn't, can't replace actually going, can it? I mean, no matter how many brochures you look at, no matter how many screenshots you see of the Great Barrier Reef, nothing's like getting on the snorkels and diving underneath, is it? And if you haven't done that, you really need to. It's great. You can, you can look at getaway as much as you like. Until you go, there's nothing like it. Nothing beats being there. The Corinthians, they were trying to bring heaven to earth, but as they did, they were cheapening the wonders of heaven. They were living the brochure life, and it's just the brochure, the real thing's coming. But they were living for the brochure. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Stupid. Doesn't make sense. They were pursuing the blessings now instead of living for the blessings to come, and they were selling heaven short. They were selling themselves short. And this approach to the Christian life took their focus off what they were meant to be doing. They were on holiday. 
they were meant to be serving and working for the Lord Jesus Christ, waiting for him to return. Now, to look at the second way that the Corinthians got the Christian life out of whack, I asked you a question to discuss during the break. I know some of you would, and I know some of you wouldn't have. That's fine. The question was this. It'll come up on the screen. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. What do you think he actually meant by that? Now, for you wonderful people who did discuss that question, I'd like to get your answers to that. I'd like to get two or three responses. So, now it's confession time. You actually had a discussion about it, and what did you come up with? If I get no answers, I'll get you to discuss it again. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be again then, would it? Because you didn't do it before then. <laughs> Pardon? Active. It's active. Yeah, taking up your cross is active. It just doesn't happen by accident. That's really helpful. Yeah. A couple more? It is sacrificial, so it actually hurts. Yeah, it's not easy. One more. Say that again. Prepared for suffering. That's exactly right. Um, the guy I was talking to, I won't, I won't let you know who it was, Nelson. Um, he said, dropping everything I have. And I thought, yeah, that's a really helpful. Thanks, Nelson. It was a really good thought, and I did want to share it. And this, so this really brings us to the second way that the Corinthian approach to the Christian life is completely out of whack. It fails to appreciate what the Christian life is promised and meant to be now. The Corinthians created expectations for themselves that were never going to be met because this world is broken, this world is cursed, this world is marred by sin, my own sin and the sin of others. If our expectation is for blessing and comfort and happiness and success and riches and rest and glory now, then what will happen to our trust in Jesus if that doesn't materialise and last? And we encounter struggle and suffering and persecution and our own sin that keeps on coming back and the sin of others that just frustrates and the rejection of the world. What's going to happen then? Are we going to think Jesus wasn't up for his promise and give up? I think it's all a waste of time. The trouble is we've got our expectations wrong. Because he told us to take up our cross and follow him. Not to have the easy life and comfort. So in these verses, Paul contrasts their view of the victorious or comfortable Christian life with that of his own life and the other apostles in verses 10 to 13. And what he describes in these verses is not a pretty picture. Verse 10, he says, listen, we're fools, we're weak, we're dishonoured. Verse 11, they go hungry, they're thirsty, they're dressed in rags, they're, brooded, they're brutally treated, they're homeless. Verse 12, they work hard with their hands and this is in an age where work with your hands was done by slaves. It was beneath everybody else. Verse, uh, verse 12 again, they are cursed and return they bless. They're persecuted. Verse 13, they're slandered but they answer kindly. In summary, he says, listen, we're seen as the scum of the earth, or to put it in my words, they're the scrapings of filth off the bottom of life's barrel. That's, that's how they describe themselves. That's how the world sees them. That's what it feels like for them sometimes. Now, Paul never mentions the cross in these verses, but I've got to say, as you read through it, that's where it has to take you, isn't it? In fact, some of those descriptions are descriptions of what Jesus did for us 
on the way to the cross. He doesn't mention the cross, but it's clear also from the context, from chapters 1 to 3, that Paul lives this foolish and shameful life because of the foolish and shameful cross. That's why he does it. Paul's Christian life is not shaped by the things of this world, but by the cross. And so Paul makes it clear in verse 14 that he underlines the difference between their approach, their approach to the Christian life and his own approach to the Christian life. Not to shame them, he says. No, I don't want to shame you, but I want to warn you. I want to admonish you. They live the comfortable Christian life, not shaped by the cross. They are immature, they are worldly, and the cross of Christ has not impacted on the way that they think and live the Christian life. And it has to change, he says. Last week we saw that Jesus, and in particular the gospel focused on the finished work for us on the cross of Christ, was the foundation for the church of God that Paul so expertly laid in Corinth, as we see in the scriptures. In this chapter we see that not only is the cross our beginning, not only is the cross the foundation, but it's actually the superstructure that also sits on top of that foundation. So the cross shapes our Christian life from from beginning to end, from our salvation to glory in heaven. It's got to shape it the whole way through. It's not as if you start the Christian life with the gospel and the cross and you move on to something else. No, you start with the Christian gospel of the cross and you continue with the Christian gospel of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't change. And what the Corinthians had started to do was shift away from the cross and to another understanding of how to live the Christian life. And Paul says, no, don't do that. And so he urges them in verse 16, imitate me, he says. And he also says, listen, learn from Timothy, my spiritual son, what this Christian life looks like. And he'll remind you of what it looks like. So like him and like Timothy, they need to embrace living life as the refuse of the world, as the scum of the earth, and be prepared to be seen as a fool for Christ. Pay the price of being his disciple. Take up your cross, follow Jesus, and forgive when wronged, and willingly be dishonoured, and willingly seen as weak and a fool. Enduring persecution instead of chasing the comfortable Christian life. Going that extra mile to engage in the life of someone else. Speaking the truth in love rather than settling for those easy conversations that never go past something significant. Now don't get me wrong, and this is something I need to really say clearly at this point. Don't hear me say that we should shun enjoying the good things that God gives us. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that at all. In fact, he knows what it is to be content with much as well as with little, okay? So he's not saying don't enjoy the good things of this world, but don't find meaning and purpose in that. Don't live for that. That's what he's saying. That's the real thing he's saying. And he's also not saying serve until you drop, okay? That is, he wants you to serve for a whole lifetime. And so rest is good, and God, and we need to have rest, and we need to recuperate, okay? That's important. You're not saying rest until you burn out. That's right, work until you burn out. But we still... We still need to take up our cross and follow. It's a hard thing to work out. But do the hard, hard thing of working it out. That's what he wants them to do. Don't swap the joys of heaven for the pleasures of today. That's what he's saying. When I became a father, I began to see more and more how much like my dad I was and how much I imitated him in ways I didn't even realise before I became a dad. Uh, in the ways I defaulted into disciplining my kids. I got it from him. I didn't realise it, but I did. In the jokes I tell. Just ask my kids. In my approach to money, I was really surprised at how much like my dad I was. I didn't even know that I was doing it, but I was doing it like he did. It was just so weird. In lots of ways, I'm like my dad, in ways I'm happy with, in ways that I long to change. 
And we're all like that. Like the Corinthians, we need to imitate our father, the Apostle Paul. He's our spiritual father. He's the Apostle to the Gentiles. And so just like he told the Corinthians, imitate me like a father, we need to do the same. We need to consider his life, the way he lived sacrificially, shaped by the cross, the way he shunned the valleys of his day to bring the gospel of the cross to a world that so desperately needs it. That's what he did and pay the price to do it. Now, you might be here today and don't as yet know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're still working that out, working that whole big God question out. And if that's you, it is so great that we're here. We love having you here. As you search and seek and try and work out this whole God question, I want to say doing it with others who have done the same, who've met the Lord Jesus and love the Lord Jesus and get those questions answered, that's a great way to do it. Continue to do that. But you might find this betrayal of the Christian life a little bit unappealing. It's a little bit hard, isn't it? You think, really? I've got to take up the cross? I've got to suffer? I've got to be rejected by the world? It, it doesn't sound good, Greg. It's not a good marketing line, I've got to say. And it's not a good marketing line. But that's not the point. But I do want you to consider Jesus with your eyes open to see that he doesn't promise the easy life. He doesn't promise a life free from suffering and pain or rejection. He does promise all those things and the real and ongoing struggle with sin, but he promises it as one who has gone through it himself, who has suffered himself, who took up the cross literally and died for you. And he promises to be with you in this struggle through his spirit. And he also promises eternal life. And with all that, purpose and joy now and into eternity. So I want you to examine Christianity with your eyes open, Jesus with your eyes open, but I also want you to think about the alternative. See, you could chase the acceptance of this world. You could chase all the good things of this world and the riches and the honour and the glory and the comfort and the success and you might get it for a time, but you will also get disappointment and grief and sorrow and the knowledge that all of it really is shallow in the end and so quickly disappears. And in the end, it will all be gone. Because one day, Jesus will keep his promise and he will come back and you will face your maker. Wouldn't it be better to find meaning and purpose and significance in the eyes of the one who made you, who died for you, who is your judge, than in the fickle acceptance of our world? So I want you to consider Christ with your eyes open, but I also want you to consider the lives of the world with your eyes open too. And if you need help in doing that, please don't hesitate to ask. There's so many things that shape our lives, aren't there? You know, our, our parents, our upbringing, in other ways as well, our expectations of life, our friends, our, our wider family, our culture, our past experiences, all they all shape us and we're called in this passage, let the cross be the primary shaping factor in your life. How can you make sure that the cross is the primary shaping factor in your life? It's easy to say it. What does it look like to do it? Ask yourself some hard questions, these sort of questions. Why did I do that? 
Ask yourself that question when you do something. Why did I do that? Or why did I buy that? Or why do I think that? It's important. Ask those questions. Seek good answers. Examine yourself. Think through that. How do I contribute to the church life and to God's kingdom and why? What's the motivation behind it? What am I seeking to achieve? Ask those hard questions deeply, honestly, and as you examine those things, pick one thing and say, I'm going to to do that one change to help the cross be more at the centre and shape my life. That's a great thing to do and continue to do it for the rest of your life. Paul ends this chapter on these chapters, really chapters 1 to 4, on worldliness of the Corinthians in, a, in the way that they treat him and in the way that they treat one another with these words, verses 20 to 21. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Just quickly, when, when Paul contrasts the, uh, the power and the words in verse 20, he's not contrasting the ministry of the word with the ministry of power that saved miracles. That's not what he's contrasting, all right? We need to make that crystal clear. If that's the contrast he was making, he'd be contradicting chapters 1 to 3 with the ministry of the word of the gospel and the, the power of the cross through the ministry of the Spirit. No, no, that's not what he's contrasting. He's contrasting the empty words of those boastful, arrogant teachers with the powerful ministry of the cross of Christ, a a ministry that cares so much for people that he's willing to say hard words to those who need to hear it. Words he knows that applied by the Spirit will change people's hearts forever. That's what he's contrasting. A powerful cross with the empty words of these teachers. But then Paul asked the Corinthians... Do they want him to come in punishment, in rebuke, with a whip, or with words of encouragement and gentle love? Paul's made it crystal clear. He's happy to say hard words, isn't he? And if he comes, he's prepared to do it and to say it. So let's go back to our question at the start. Let's say we turned around and there's Paul, the Apostle Paul. I don't know how you'd recognise him. We haven't got a picture of him, but let's say he just walks in. He'd be pretty old. I think we'd work it out. And he comes and he takes the lectern and he addresses church at 6.30. What words would he come with? What would he say? Would he come with stinging rebuke? In punishment? Or would he come with love and gentleness? What about if he talked with you over dinner? Would he come with words of stinging rebuke? or words of love and gentle encouragement. I don't think he'd come with a whip. I don't think we have the same sort of problems that the Corinthians had in a party spirit that's there. But having said that, I'm sure he'd have some pretty hard words to say. I know he would to me. Of the ways that we've let the world and the ways of the world shape the way that we think. And he'd see it as someone from outside this culture and he would pinpoint it and he would say it. And we'd need to listen. But I think he'd also come with words of encouragement and gentle love. Because I'm so encouraged when I see so many of you serving in lots and lots of different ways. Making sacrifices for the kingdom of God. And he would have words of love and encouragement. And you know what? We need to hear both of these words, don't we? 
the stinging rebuke and encouragement and love. And I hope you have heard them tonight.